Oh, good timing. Amy, jump back in right at the last second. Yeah, I was really hoping I nailed it this week. <laughs> All right. Good. Well, hi, everybody. My name is Fraser Kane. I'm the publisher of Universe Today, and this is your Weekly Space Hangout for May 31st, 2012. This week, we are, of course, going to be talking about the uh, successful flight of SpaceX's Dragon capsule. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, manned missions to Venus, uh, nomadic planets, and the, um, the announcement of the Square Kilometer Array. And we've also got a special guest this week, which is Robert Nemiroff from Astronomy Picture of the Day. And, uh, and Bob is going to be showcasing some of the recent amazing pictures in, uh, from APOD, as we call it in the biz. So joining us for our, our panel this week, we've got uh, the uh, sleep-deprived Alan Boyle from MSNBC's Cosmic Log. We've got Amy Shearer Title from Vintage Space. We've got Jason Major from Light in the Dark. And we've got Nicole Gallucci, a.k.a. the noisy astronomer, Dr. Nicole Gallucci. <laughs> Got to get into the habit of that. And of course, as I mentioned, Robert Nemiroff from Astronomy Picture of the Day. But, uh, but first, while we can sort of sap, you know, get any more brain cells left from, from Alan Boyle before he, he collapses from over-reporting, uh, let's talk about the, uh, the successful landing of, the, uh, of SpaceX's Dragon. Well, Fraser, I don't think I'm alone in being sleep-deprived or kind of excited about how this all turned out. Uh, if you've been following the tweet stream, you know that after uh, a more than a week in space, uh, the Dragon uh, spacecraft by SpaceX returned today uh, in a picture-perfect splashdown from its mission to the International Space Station, and it was the first commercial visit to the space station, also the first U.S. craft to uh, visit the space station since the retirement of the shuttle fleet last year. And it's also the first commercial craft to return something from orbit, uh, something like 1,300 pounds of cargo that uh, was loaded aboard the, uh, the craft and, and came down uh, with the splashdown. So uh, there's really not too much you can say beyond what the press kit said would have happened because it was really a picture-perfect uh, descent and, and uh, splashdown from orbit. And a lot of people were saying when they saw those three uh, parachutes pop up from the capsule and, and the, saw the capsule coming down, it really was a throwback to the days of Apollo. And uh, who knows, maybe this is going to be uh, a new age. We're going to be seeing a lot more of those parachutes uh, over the next few years. SpaceX has a $1.6 billion contract to do 12 cargo flights like this to the space station. And within three to five years, uh, SpaceX and other uh, spaceship builders could be sending astronauts, U.S. astronauts, to the, the space station again. There's a little flag up there at the space station which was uh, placed by the last shuttle crew. And that flag is going to the uh, first uh, private company that's able to carry U.S. astronauts up there. And so I feel like we're... Uh, we're a good way down the line to somebody, whether it's SpaceX or somebody else, capturing that flag. So it's going to be an interesting three years. Let's not hope. Let's hope it's not a bumpy ride. Let's hope it goes as smoothly as it did today. So I mean, based on this, and also there was a recent announcement that uh, that SpaceX is, has won a contract to for its first uh, um, Falcon I, Heavy launch. Mm -hmm. So I mean, have they? And, and at significantly lower prices than what anyone else can launch uh, objects into space. So does it look like, like at this point, 
SpaceX is about to take the whole field? Are they going to run away with launch? They're the, they're the early leader, and uh, early leader has a pretty good uh, vantage point in the field. I don't know how maybe other folks uh, have different feelings on this, but it, it's certainly, uh, certainly SpaceX is going to be in the running. It's always possible for somebody like Boeing, which is also getting into the commercial space field, to to catch up, and uh, Boeing has been doing this for decades, and so uh, you cannot write off uh, companies like that or like ATK and Astrium, all these other uh, traditional players in the aerospace industry, which are just starting to get their feet wet. Right, but, but I mean, their prices are, are half, <clears throat> a quarter, you know, significantly cheaper than any other uh, launch provider out there. Yeah, you're talking about the old days. I, I think it's, uh, I think even the uh, traditional players in the spaceflight industry are trying to take a page from this, and uh, I think that you're going to find that uh, the fact that SpaceX started it off with a much lower cost than the traditional way of doing things uh, is really going to get the uh, competitive juices flowing, and uh, you are going to see more competition in the aerospace field because of this. But maybe other people have some things they'd like to chime in on. Well, I, I think what was what was great as well was just how active Elon Musk was as the uh, as the launch was happening. I mean, he was right on site, helping you know get the word out. He was even I, uh, people noticed he was actually tweeting during uh, the the landing. You could actually see him looking at his his phone, and then the tweet showed up on on Twitter at the same time. Yeah, Jason picked up on that. The whole the whole event was very uh, it was very meta. You know, we're, wa we're watching we're watching Elon. Watch the launch, or watch the, um, or watch the splashdown, and then tweet about it. And then the tweet came in, and then everybody who's watching him on Twitter tweeted about <laughs> him tweeting. So you know, and, and and I said, I mean, come on, welcome to the future. Mm -hmm. We're watching watching a man tweet about his spaceship landing, and then reading the tweet and watching him do it. <laughs> and, and I think you know, I mean, if the people at NASA are are wondering how to, to sort of be able to connect with the public, I think, you know, Elon just delivered a master class on how to do that, which is to be involved, to be out there, to be, to inject his personality into the launch and connect that all together, that, that the exploration of space, even, even though this is just commercial, is about the human beings that are involved with the missions. And I think that that, that was, you know, if there's one lesson I hope that NASA and the other space agencies take away from this is, is how important it is to have these, these personalities involved, that it is human endeavor that's behind all of this, this spacecraft. So, phenomenal day. I, you know, I, I wrote a, an opinion piece on Google Plus recently and just mentioned that I thought this is, this is one of those days that's going to be remembered as the day that everything kind of changed. A lot of people gave me a hard time about it, but, but that's the way I feel. So. so I have a question for the panel. Um, what is it exactly that SpaceX is doing that makes it so inexpensive? Is it materials? Have they made advances in materials? Is it computerization? What is it? Yeah, uh, my take is that uh, there are lessons learned from the way that uh, Silicon Valley worked with things. Uh, one thing that Elon talks a lot about is vertical integration. Rather than relying on a network of suppliers, they make a lot of the, the things themselves. And so you have a more vertically integrated supply stream. Also, there's a lot of uh, software simulation of uh, how, things, how things work. And uh, a lot of the 
ethos that, that ha has gone into the computer age has been carried over to, to simulate how things are going to work. Uh, you know, every, uh, virtually every time that there has been a little hiccup in what SpaceX has done, it's because of the software. And so it's better to have the software stop a launch uh, a half second before liftoff rather than having a bad liftoff and losing the rocket and its payload. So uh, I think those are the sorts of things that, that they're doing, and, and NASA acknowledges that it's a, a different way of doing things. Uh, as they worked to get this mission ready, uh, I know the NASA folks have said several times that while SpaceX had a different way of doing things and we had to adjust to that, we would explain to them how we did it, and then they would explain how they would do it. And uh, I, I think it's been an interesting a series of lessons for NASA as well as SpaceX, which is probably going to benefit everybody. But I guess at the end of the day, it takes a certain amount of propellant and a certain amount of mass to hold the propellant to get your spacecraft into space, and there's no shortcuts there. Right. All right. Well, why don't we move on then? Uh, now, Alan, I know you've got to you've got to run for a press conference at some point, so feel free to to sure. leave. We won't yeah. we won't Thanks. be disappointed. Um, so now, Amy, now you're you're talking about some exciting manned missions to Venus. Yes, um, they're very old manned missions to Venus. So I've been doing some some looking into the Apollo Applications Program, which was started around 1965-66 as things to do with Apollo once Apollo landed on the moon. So you have all this hardware, you have all this knowledge, and you have this giant infrastructure of a space agency. What do you do with it? Well, you go to Venus because it's neat and it's there. So <laughs> NASA <Hot>. put together, <laughs> and hot, yeah. Um, NASA put together a couple of mission profiles that I've, that I've been looking into recently. Um, so I want to talk about a couple of them, and I've got articles I'll post. And I don't have my good Saturn V that's to scale, but I have this one to show you what's going on. It's a little wonky. Um, so here's your Saturn V, and this, this is the, the S4B stage. This is where the lunar module lives, and this is the command service module. So this proposal... Right there. There. Um, the proposed <laughs> mission would take the Apollo command and service module exactly as is, same computer running all the guidance, all the navigation, all the uh, reaction control, the same service module doing all of the stuff. Instead of having a lunar module in here, they had an environmental service module. That would be the main instrument bay and all the things that they would need to sort of regulate stuff inside the spacecraft. And once these, sorry, these two were docked in Earth orbit, the S-4B stage would fire them on their way to Venus. They'd turn around and pick it up, just like they did the lunar module going to the moon, and then refurbish the spent rocket stage into a living and recreation quarters, because you need some recreation space on a 400-day mission to Venus. So the idea was, I'm just going to pull up some of the... Uh, there was no Angry Birds yet. <laughs> no, I don't know what you do for that long, but uh, the, there's a, um, a proposal for a flyby mission that was going to launch sometime between October 31st and November 30th, 1973. That was the best geometry for launch to Venus. The outbound leg of the trip was 123 days. So they would get to Mar um, Venus around March 3rd, 1974, and spend a few hours making a flyby. That's it. That's all they'd get is a few hours. And then they'd start the, the very long, I think 223, I think is the number, day leg back to Earth. The whole thing would take 400 days for a few hours of observation of Venus with like x-rays and spectrometers and stuff, and that was to get close enough that, you know, their instruments could pierce the really thick cloud cover. So instead of going on a flyby, they figured why not send people into orbit. This wasn't a much better mission. 
Um, they were the, the proposal I read is about a 1980 launch, which is horrible geometry. Um, but using Apollo propellants and Apollo hardware, they could do basically the same thing. The trip sort of average would be between 360 to 660 days with a maximum of 100 days in orbit. But the days in orbit. 100 days were in orbit. Gonna, were they going to drop something and watch it melt? Um, <laughs> that'd be fun. I think, I think the, um, the flyby mission was going to launch some surface probes and some atmospheric probes. This one, the, the orbital mission was much shorter, and I think it was based on the same hardware. But um, the average mission that this orbital thing was going for was a 400-day mission with 20 days in orbit around Venus. That's a really long way to go for 20 days. And that was putting it into an elliptic orbit. Like, if, if here is Venus, this is a really bad thing. And here's your orbit. Venus would be in here. You'd be whipping by the planet. You'd get just over three days under three Venus radii close to the surface. That would make it better than a flyby. And that's all they got. <laughs> However, it was yeah, really, based on yeah. <laughs> And there really wouldn't be much to see either. I mean, no, if you think about it. No, you know, it would be pretty be bland. <laughs> yeah, you'd be closer to the sun, you'd be hotter, you'd be much, much more prone to solar radiation and solar storms. Um, even in an enforced spacecraft, but that was going with what Apollo capabilities were, that was cheaper than the best case scenario Mars orbital mission for one Saturn V launch, which is interesting. And obviously this never happened, that, no. that we moved to the space no. shuttle and, and instead of orbiting uh, Venus for 100 days, they orbit Earth for 100 days. Yeah. Well, we lost all the money for the Saturn Vs and then had to go with something smaller and cheaper and totally reusable. So. Right. But yeah, really neat. Could have been futures. So I've got some articles on that I'll post later. How, and how I, serious I, did they ever get? I mean, like, how was it just, here's a pilot study on what we might do, or was there someone really pushing that? Um, there, I don't know how far anyone was pushing the Venus. I know they were pushing the, the Mars stuff much harder and some really neat uh, landing on the far side of the moon things. But the, the orbital plan gets into, like, breaking down wattage per man hours for every portion of the spacecraft. It's really detailed, and it's really getting into the nitty-gritty to really prove that the Apollo hardware was worth maintaining after the program. It's a really interesting proposal, and I, I don't, I mean, I'd love to see that come back I don't know if it would be practical, but it would be fun to see that kind of mission go. I also just think Venus is really cool. Yeah, well, they did a bunch of those, didn't they? Like, like a, a similar mission plan for doing a Mars flyby? Yeah, yeah there, there is one. It was, they didn't have any Mars landing plans, but there was a flyby and an orbital. I think there was a Venus and Mars combined orbital flight or yeah. flyby flight, which would be ridiculous and long. Oh, my God. I haven't gotten into that one yet, but yeah. Yeah. Those are the fun things they were doing with bottomless budgets and Fraser said <laughs> nerves of steel. <laughs> but but I think the point with all of this is that the only way to do, to figure out how to do space exploration is to do space exploration. That yes. that the only way to find out if you can keep a human being alive far away from Earth for 400 consecutive days is to just send them away yeah. and you know bring them back and hope they're still alive. And yeah. and if you know if they get a flyby of Venus, then that's a bonus. But you know you could also just sort of fire them off in a big long orbit and then see them again in 400 days and hope they didn't die. So I think yeah. that's I think there's you know there's absolutely value as I say you know the only way to do space exploration is to just do it. Yeah. So the the, the plans can only say so much about how they're going to react and what their actual you know physical and Mm -hmm. mental capabilities there are, but yeah. When does the space madness kick in? Yeah. I imagine really soon. <laughs> Around day 60. 
day 60. <laughs> day, right, day 60. Day 60 is when you can't get back anymore. Day 60 oh, that's is right. that's, that's what causes the madness. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Uh, well, Jason, let's hear about some nomadic planets. Oh, okay, great. Um, well, you know, when you think about planets, you typically have this image of a solar system. Um, you know, the planets orbiting a star, um, you know, like Earth orbits the sun. But there's actually a lot of planets out there that don't have a, a sun to orbit. They, they drift through interstellar space. Um, and there could actually be quite a lot of them. The, um, uh, uh, some scientists at, over at, I want to say it was, the, uh, uh, it was Stanford University and Harvard, uh, have done some research on what they call nomadic planets. And they found about a dozen of them by microlensing, and when I say microlensing, that that means that they uh, they detect the planets as they pass in front of background stars. So by doing a little bit of math and saying, okay, well, how big are these planets? It turns out that the ones that they were finding were they were figuring about Pluto size, which is pretty small. But when they started doing the math, they said there's actually a lot of these things out there, and as it turns out, there could be up to a hundred thousand of them per star in the galaxy. Now, you do a little bit more math and you realize that that's really a lot of exoplanets, or really a lot of, I should, I'd say exoplanets, really a lot of nomadic planets out there. In fact, the number that they came up with was somewhere in the order of quadrillions. Now, I'm not a math guy, so I didn't really know what quadrillions were. So when I looked that up, I realized that quadrillions is 10 to the 15th. That's actually one followed by 15 zeros. And if you're... If there are nomadic planets out in the Milky Way galaxy alone, in that number, that's a lot of planets drifting out there. So the question is, is what type of worlds are these, and where did they come from? Well, there's two possible explanations as far as where nomadic planets come from. One, they could have been kicked out of solar systems as they were forming. Um, there's, there was a game online, or I, I say a game, there was a web app online where you can build your own solar system. I, I can't quite remember the name of it. Uh, you can build your own solar system, you put the parameters in, you say how many planets you want, uh, how quickly they're going, and then you press play. And usually you end up watching all of your planets get kicked right out of your solar system because it's difficult to s establish a stable uh, uh, orbit of more than two three bodies. So it's quite possible that this has happened uh, in the past along the, you know, along the timeline of galactic evolution. So, you know, as, as stars form and they form solar systems, planets get kicked out of them. Some of them stay, some of them go. And then maybe the stars come and go, but the planets that they, that they left behind still drift through the galaxy. So, that, so that's why there's, there's possibly a lot more uh, nomad planets than there are stars. So you get these worlds drifting around. Oh, and, and, another, and another way that they can uh, be formed, potentially, is by the coalescence of, um, of gas clouds, gas and dust, like how stars form, except there is a, a lower limit on how big such a planet could be. So they figure, they figure approximately around Jupiter sizes is, the, uh, is how small such a world could be. But on the other end of the scale, from things that are getting kicked out, there could be worlds uh, that are Earth-sized, Mars-sized, possibly even Pluto-sized and smaller, drifting around out there. And the interesting thing is, is there could be heat 
inside of these planets. Now, even though they're not, they don't have a sun of their own, they don't have seasons, they don't have uh, night and day, they're just drifting through eternal darkness uh, out, out in the galaxy, they could have their own source of internal heat that, that powers them along. If that's the case, and there was ever water on these worlds, who's to say there couldn't be some kind of, uh, you know, precursors of life? inside the planets, inside these, you know, ice-covered, uh, they call it a blanket, a heat blanket, uh, ice-covered worlds with, it, with an interior heat source, possibly liquid water, drifting throughout the galaxy. And another interesting concept is that they could actually be ejected from the galaxy entirely. So who's to say these worlds aren't in intergalactic space? You get a, a world like this too close to a black hole, it's going to get flung out, and it's going to get flung out fast potentially even leaving the confines of the galaxy entirely. So that's an interesting concept. And if you want to find out more about it, there, uh, I have an article up on Universe Today Now. Uh, it's called um, Worlds Without Suns. And it features a dialogue between three planetary scientists uh, from the Kavli Foundation, uh, which, is, uh, which is a foundation over in California that sponsors the further, uh, you know, furtherment of science and astronomy. That's really cool. <clears throat> yeah, I thought, I thought it was really cool, you know, because typically, uh, as, as, as programs like Kepler and, uh, and the ESO telescopes, they're looking out there for exoplanets and exoplanetary systems. There's potentially a lot more worlds out there that aren't attached to a sun and aren't orbiting stars. You know, there used to be an estimate that something like half the meteors were on parabolic, no, hyperbolic orbits, meaning that... Uh, they could have been coming from outside the solar system, but now they've got better data on that. It's actually hard to find one for sure right. that's on a hyperbolic orbit. So most of the meteors, and also most are, are right on the border between hyperbolic and parabolic, which means they were hovering out there. And I think the same is true mostly for comets. I don't think there's ever been a, a comet that's clearly been on a hyperbolic orbit, and that would be the lower end of these, these, these planets. But it's certainly... When you make a solar system, you're going to be throwing star system. You're going to be throwing a lot of these things out there. So right. I mean, it was it was it was, uh, it, it was hypothesized that at one point our solar system may have even lost the Neptune-sized world at one point. Mm -hmm. So you know, where do these worlds go? Do they do they hang out in some distant orbit around the star that they that that they uh, were were formed around, or do they drift out? Do they get captured by other solar systems? If they had developed uh, life on, on their surface or underneath their surface, do they bring it to another system? So all that stuff is really, mm -hmm. is really what makes this concept interesting. Right. Yeah, with that many planets floating around, you can almost imagine that a lot of them are getting captured with all these crazy three-body diagrams. You know, well, three no, body space is big and empty, though. To, to that, still, the, the chances of something getting captured in the solar system are easy. Yeah, just last week uh, there was a report uh, about uh, more speculation about a possible planet X, some sort of uh, planet that may have been one of the rogue planets that Jason was talking about that, that may be on the edges of our solar system and, and may uh, explain the, uh, the strange orbit of this uh, large Kuiper Belt object or scattered disk object called Sedna, uh, which was discovered by uh, Mike Brown, Caltech astronomer. And uh, coincidentally, Mike Brown uh, today uh, was named one of the winners of the Kavli Prize for astrophysics along with David Jewett and Jane Liu for their role in charting out the Kuiper Belt, this big ice ring uh, with my favorite planet, Pluto, 
uh, in it. And so uh, congratulations to them. And, uh, and it'll be interesting to see all the diversity of planets that, that come about because of the Kepler mission, but also because of uh, the sorts of things that, that Jason is writing about, uh, studies of all these weird sorts of uh, hybrid worlds that, that people at, once, at, at one time thought were hypothetical, but maybe someday we'll find evidence that, that they really do exist. And uh, so, Nicole, last but not least, uh, let's talk about the, uh, the square kilometer array. Sure. We've um, been talking about the rumors and reports that have been coming out over the last few months here uh, at the Space Hangout. Uh, and the Square Kilometer Array is a huge, gigantic, enormous radio telescope uh, that has been, uh, was conceived back in the early 90s, actually, a while back. Um, so it, it, the idea is that you want a square kilometer of collecting area. It makes it 50 times more sensitive than any telescope that we have, uh, any radio telescope that we have today. And the idea is to span over a huge wavelength range and be able to map all the hydrogen out to a certain, to a certain distance uh, in, the gal in, in the universe, um, detect black holes, and, and just see everything and revolutionize the field. And so most recently, uh, as we get closer to um, actually building uh, this instrument, there has been a site selection process. Where are we going to put this big, massive, important telescope? Uh, and the, the most re and uh, the two candidates, uh, the two candidate countries have, for the last five plus years or so, have been South Africa and Australia. And they, uh, each country has its own um, prototype array. So I, I got to see Meerkat, which is the uh, the Karoo Array Telescope, which is out in the desert in South Africa, and they're testing the technology for the SKA with uh, seven antennas. And there's also, Australia has their own called ASCAP, which is the, the Australia Square Kilometer Array Prototype. Uh, so both of these countries have written these huge long reports. They've tested their sites. Uh, and both the governments have been really uh, push putting a lot of money into these projects to try and get this big telescope at their, at, at their, at their site. And so the, uh, the, the decision was finally made uh, a few days ago. And the decision is both. We're going to split the telescope and put it in both sites. Uh, so this is actually uh, not surprising to, to pretty much anyone who's been following this project along the last few years um, with, with, uh, with any interest. Um, so it was already decided several years ago that we can't, that it, it's going to be too difficult to pick up the entire frequency range with one antenna design. And so there's probably going to be a low frequency antenna design and a mid-range frequency antenna design. So already the array was going to be split in that way. And it looks like that's what, that is what they're going to do. Um, that's how they're going to use both sites is the low frequency array is going to be built in Australia. And the, and the mid-range, what they're calling the mid-range array, um, is going to be built in South Africa. And so they're using both sites. They're using um, the, the talent and expertise that have been built up at both sites and, uh, and obviously the money that both governments have been putting into it. And so it's seen as a very positive thing politically. <laughs> However, uh, it it's makes some people a little uncomfortable uh, from, from the side of the science uh, or the infrastructure costs because now you're building up a huge observatory infrastructure in two locations, whereas you would have been doing it in one location if it was all together. Um, and and uh, really, we have yet to see how it's going to play out um, in terms of observatory operations and all of that. But I think 
pretty much everyone seems pretty happy that both countries are going to be involved. This is a huge multinational project, um, and you don't want to see things break up as other projects have done that I will not name. Um, we have seen some projects in radio astronomy break up because of site selection or, uh, you know, or compromi compromises made on things like antenna design um, to keep everybody politically happy um, as well as scientifically. But isn't a, a long baseline where you've got these two sites, isn't that a good thing in, in the world of radio astronomy? Well, they're, they're the, when you get these really long baselines like that, you lose your sensitivity. And so for the projects that they're doing, they, there hasn't, I don't think there's been too much talk about actually linking the two sites. I and mean, you're going to have two, sep two separate types of arrays, one in each site. They're not really meant to work together. Um, those really long baselines, we, there are some arrays, like the very long baseline array um, in, in across North America that is specifically designed to do that. Um, but I don't think that's part of the SKA plan. The longest baselines are going to be across the Australian continent or across the African continent. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, like, as soon as I heard that they were putting in both locations, that made me think, okay, great, they're going to be able to connect the two locations together and get a really right. long baseline. But if, but if they're not going to well, do that... One long baseline does not much of a map make, unfortunately. Yeah, it have to be spread out across the globe to, in order to make uh, a more filled in... Right, way. right. I mean, if you, yeah. you know, that's all, is, that made sense. And if you're going to take a, the square kilometer and you're going to spread it out, so you're both going to get the resolution and the, the sensitivity, then, then that's, that seemed like it made a lot of sense. But if you're telling me that they're not going to be linking up these facilities, that's then that almost that. does sound more political, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not to be cynical about it, but, you're you know... Glad, you're, you're grateful <laughs> to get a square kilometer of radio telescope. Hey, if they build this thing, I mean, it's a huge project. It's, I mean, they're estimating it's a $2 billion project, and I'm sure that's an underestimate. Um, I'm sure it's going to be so much more by the time this thing actually gets built in the 2020s or whenever uh, it gets finished. Uh, it's a massive undertaking, and I think we'll be happy. We're happy to see the, the science um, and technology that are coming out of the Pathfinder arrays, and that's great. And that's been great for uh, science, particularly in South Africa. It's been really good for the science and education development in that country. Um, they're getting so many more students involved in science uh, because of that project. Um, but to, to see this come to its fruition, uh, you know, I'm, I'm still fingers crossed. I don't know what's going to happen. That sounds great. All right, well, why don't we move to our special guest, which is, uh, which is Robert Nemiroff from Astronomy Picture of the Day. And uh, before we get into some of your really cool pictures, uh, Bob, can you give us a, a history of Astronomy Picture of the Day which, for anyone who somehow doesn't know what it is? Okay, sure. So uh, APOD, as we call it, um, uh, you can find it at apod.nasa.gov. So we put up an image every day, and we put a hyperlinked explanation below it that we try to limit to a short paragraph. And so um, I, often, I, I used to work, before I came to Michigan Tech where I am now, I used to work at uh, NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. And my office mate was uh, Jerry Bunnell. And um, so he's still at uh, NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. He works through the University of Maryland. And I don't know, I can tell you a story. So um, let's see, um, we had, um, Every summer, uh, we were in a research group that studied gamma ray bursts, and we still collaborate on gamma ray burst research. Um, so every summer, or at least once a year, our group leader, Jay Norris, would go away for a month, and he would build his, um, his ranch in Colorado. 
So although we much enjoyed um, doing gamma reverse research, we took this month off, sort of, and just did wacky things. So it was like wacky month. So in 1994, Jerry and I started computing digits of E and um, square root of 2 and things like that. And it turns out we set the world record. And uh, for E, actually, it, we didn't know until that much later, we beat Steve Wozniak. And so we were interested to check those digits to see if there was some kind of strange pattern to them, because there might be, because there's another really long story why there might be, because if there was some kind of... Uh, um, so if you went into the library and you started um, digitizing all the books where A is 01 and B is 02 or use ASCII, and you were to make one long series of digits, which is all the books in the library, you'd look at it and say, hey, this string of digits is um, redundant. So I'm going to compress them. And so once you compress them, it becomes less redundant. Eventually it looks like it's random. And it's actually very difficult to tell between pure randomness and pure knowledge. Um, so we thought maybe the digits of E would be pure knowledge. All we needed was the key. But we couldn't find the key, but we did find a good random number generator. Because um, we can use the digits of these. So that was in 1994. So in 1995, uh, when Jay went away, we started come trying to, we were brainstorming for, for wacky things to do. And we had these pretty good computers and a tremendous bandwidth in 1995. We had the thickest trunk around. And so we came up with ideas of what we could do. One is we could answer astronomy questions. And that was too hard because we were fundamentally lazy. Right. So another thing is um, we could give out like gold medallions, like a website could go gold or something if it did a certain amount of business. But there was no way that we knew what kind of how popular a website was really, and also who would care what we thought. And also we didn't really have expertise in that. So the third idea was there's all these images that are floating around and being emailed to us. Here's some kind of image. We think it's from Hubble. Isn't it strange? And they were going without attribution. And we were seeing the web grow up, and it seemed like it would be a stupid web where people were just sending things around that they didn't understand. And we decided <laughs> we didn't want a stupid web. We decided that we're going to take some of these images that are being sent around, and we're going to explain them. We're going to put a different one up there every day. And of course, people were worried we were going to run out of images. But <laughs> we, knew, we knew that the Ranger series took hundreds of thousands of pictures of the moon. So at worst, we would get really boring and say, this is crater number. 15,408. See how gray it is? <laughs> but, but we have not run out of images. And so the first day we did this, 14 people found us. We don't know how. How do you know who we are, where we are? And so eventually we wanted to get the site listed on the What's New on the Web page that would come out. I don't know, Fraser, maybe you might remember that yeah. back in 95. So, so we saved up a good image for that day. And... Um, so then when, when Jay came back, we kind of kept it quiet. But he sort of found out, and to our, our good fortune, he kind of liked it. So we just, we forgot to stop. So it's been gone for, we're coming up on our 17th anniversary in um, June. And, and at this point, APOD is a complete and total traffic juggernaut. I mean, how many visitors are you guys getting every day? Every day? Um, so we do uh, over a million page views a day to the apod.nasa.gov site. And, but we don't know a lot of the other. See, a lot of people translate this on their own to different languages. So most major languages, it's been, first of all, I should also say that I am not speaking on behalf of NASA here. I'm speaking for myself. So, but, 
But so people, they volunteer to translate this, and we all, what we used to say when they would do this, we said, that's great, you can translate it, we can't help you, we can't pay you, but it's great if you want to translate it to Spanish or Portuguese or Italian, uh, but uh, just tell us how many PhDs you're getting. So now, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll do it, but then we never heard, we never hear, so we don't really know how the mirror sites are doing. And now there's all this new technology, we call them new technology mirrors. So now there's a Facebook sort of mirror where you can subscribe to the Facebook stream. There's Google Plus. There's a, I don't even know how you pronounce it, P-interest, P Pinterest. 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 See? I see a lot of things more than I say them, so don't get me saying yes. names of Saturn satellites because I don't know how they're pronounced, but I, I would know them on site though. Um, so now you were going to showcase a few images that have happened recently that, uh, that you're yeah. really fond of. So, so um, last time I tried this about 45 minutes ago, I got, took myself off the air. So I'll ask Jason, I think he said Jason might do this. So if you could just bring up maybe yesterday's image, and we'll just go back through the last few yeah. days until oh, I get sure thing. Over. So for, for those watching, uh, one of the sort of problems with the technology with the Google Plus is that it can be a little uh, unstable when you attempt to screen share, and, uh, and we found that, that often you'll get locked up. And so Jason is our sacrificial... Uh, sacrificial person. lamb, yeah. Yeah, and so if, so if Jason locks up and, and goes offline... Uh, nobody will mind. <laughs> no, nobody will mind, and then nobody. we will send Nicole into the brief. So... <laughs> so. All right. That's how this is going to play out, and then, and then Amy, you're you're on you're on. Third. Eventually, I can just make drawings and hold them up. <laughs> I said hold them up. <laughs> Looks like this, sort of like a ring around it, though. Yep. Okay, so I see Jason's been replaced by the our own Earth. Yay. Um. Okay. So, uh, can people That's see that? Should yep. I comment on it, or should I wait for it to take up the whole screen? No, it's it's taking up the whole screen okay. for the people watching. I have control um, of what people see, so okay, you can okay. trust that I'm uh, and Jason okay. can make it big. So this is our Earth from the MTSAT satellite, which does MT stuff. I don't always know. I mean, I looked it up, but I don't remember. But it's out at the geostationary point, one of them, that's around the equator, and so it sort of seems to hover there, but it actually does sort of. You know, it's, it's like three Earth diameters away, and it stares at the Earth. And so usually it sees a normal Earth, but this time it saw something kind of different. You might notice toward the top there is this unusual black spot. So this unusual black spot is actually looking back at an eclipse. So this is the partial solar, annular solar eclipse that occurred last week. And in our times, you know, images were sent back. So um, I think this is, we've done similar things. There was a, once an image uh, taken from, let's see, the um, Mir space station way back of a big circle on Earth. Uh, if you follow the links, you'll see some other dark spots on Earth. There's even a movie you'll see if you hit the right link. Uh, but it's very educational image, it seems to me, because people usually picture an eclipse just looking toward the sun and something's in front of the sun. And you don't always make the connection that if you look back toward Earth, that there's places on Earth that are receiving less sunlight. So they're going to be darker. So there it is. And I think that thing moves across at something like 2,000 kilometers an hour, but it takes several hours to, to move across the Earth. So there was a black spot on Earth last week. That's amazing. And I guess anyone who was uh, in that black spot would be seeing the totality from the ground. Well, it wasn't totality. It was, uh, it was just an annual part. eclipse. Yeah, annual eclipse. But even then, um, the annual eclipse part is actually very little. It's only the very central part. 
the, the grayish parts around the edge, the more people are seeing that, and they're seeing part of the sun being blocked by the moon. Yeah, or, or here in, on Vancouver Island, all we saw was clouds. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, all yeah, right, let's move on. More, Jason, more. What's the next okay, one? Okay, so the one before that. Okay, so this is, um, what are these? Who can guess? Trees. Yeah. White okay. walkers. White yeah. walkers, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they kind of look like Star Wars. So that's sort of one of the things that drew me to this image. So I surfed, I waste most of my time, like, most, like many people waste their time. So some of the, like last week I was wasting my time on Google Plus and this image came by. And see, we get criticized sometimes because some of our images aren't clearly astronomical, but sorry. They're still but, awesome. Yeah. Haters got to hate. Haters going to hate. Yeah. Haters got to hate. So we, then we try to tie things in. First of all, this is from planet Earth, right? Earth's a planet, right? See? And second of all, if you look behind it, there's the belt of Venus. The belt of Venus is sort of where the sun is only illuminating the top half, and the bottom half is sort of in shadow. Mm. Um, not getting as much sunlight, so it's the belt of Venus, which mm. circles the sky, so we can tie that in. But it just sort of looks like aliens. And uh, so I contacted the, um, the photographer, who was happy to let me uh, use this for iPod, and so... Uh, he put a little uh, note on the lower right, uh, acknowledging his copyright, and, uh, and we ran with it. And one of the reasons why I like it is because it looks otherworldly. It is of planet Earth, but this is trees covered with snow and ice up in northern Finland, and it looks like you're on another planet. And that's part of the reason I think that people are interested in space and astronomy, because of that feeling that you're seeing something like that's alien or out there or really different. And this image just communicated that to me, so so we went with it. And, That's uh, awesome. So I, was, I thought it was really cool. Um, so we can go back for 17 years. Cut me off when. when <laughs> yeah, we'll just, we'll just do that. Everyone, buckle up, everyone. We're going to be yeah, here for 17 years with the images. You're cut me off. All right. So which is fine. Okay. So this one was submitted to. Um, our, you can submit images. One of the ways to do it is through our discussion board, which is either the asterisk or Starship asterisk. Um, so if you click on the discuss link on any APOD page uh, through NASA, you get taken this, and then people can submit images. So this one showed up there, and uh, it was just really cool. At first, I thought there was some kind of grass at the bottom, but if you look closely at the bottom, you see that there are people, and there's actually an interesting story. Uh, those are astronomers and park rangers in uh, Arizona, I think, and they're explaining the eclipse to people who are actually watching the same eclipse that had the spot from the day before. So this is one of the really great images that came in from the eclipse. So was this uh, actually like all in one shot, that the person yes. moved far enough away to get the sun in the scene and get those people in front of it? Yeah, there's, a, there's a, um, astrophotographers who are very deep, very hardworking. They plan these shots for a long time in advance. There's a whole community of these people and they compete with each other. And they've raised the level of astrophotography, amateur astrophotography, well past what it used to be in the past when sort of David Malin had the, the corner on the market. Now, um, now there's a lot of people who are they're now competing with each other to do videos. And so we're getting great images, better than ever before maybe, and great videos showing up many days. And so we don't, we just can't run them all, but they're just so cool. Yeah. So this is just a, a menagerie of silhouettes 
Um, it was actually the second one I saw. The first one I saw was um, I was nailed to the Associated Press, and I think it was run on um, um, National Geographic. And uh, they're too hard to shake free because they're in the, the image business, so they make their money with it, so images. So if you ask them if we can run a domain pod, they'll say, what, and undermine our business model. But fortunately, there's so many good astrophotographers out there, we can get something. And actually, after looking at this one, I thought this one was even a little better than the one that was uh, famously put up by the AP on, on many other sites. I know the picture you're talking about, the one, it looks like they're like climbing up the side of a hill yeah. with, that, with the sun illuminating in kind of the same way. But I agree, this is, this is really an amazing image. It Keep going, Jason. You don't, have to, you don't have to have lots of color. Some people think that, oh, here's one, lots of color, right? But uh, you don't have to have lots of color to have a great A-pod. It just has to, to take you on a, it has to hook you. We're looking for things that are educational, and we're looking for things that people are going to look at and say, what's that? And just they, they just want to know more. From just looking at the image, you kind of want to know more. So that's, that's the kind of stuff that we try to get as much as we can. Okay, in warming up for the last trip of Venus across the sun until the year 2117, I think, uh, there was a previous one in 2004. But even before that, um, Mercury, which is closer to the sun, uh, tries this out more often than Venus does. So Mercury is actually more of the, the, um, the gopher than Venus, which is so close to us that it rarely moves in front of the sun. So right. here... Uh, it was a little bit of a quiz, yeah, see if you can find the little black dot, which is Mercury crossing the sun, so then he got the first one. You see it in the second one? So I know exactly where to look, so yeah. once you know where to look, it's like, oh, well, that's easy. But before you know where to look, it's like, well, I'm sure I can find it, I just don't know that I can't find it right now. So this is a little bit of a quiz, and it's a little bit of a warm-up for, we're trying to get everybody, as, as universe today, as everybody is, and the, this tremendous the unusual thing of uh, Venus transiting the sun, which uh, has scientific return. Um, some people thought would have thought, I would have guessed beforehand that there wouldn't have been a lot of science return, but it's something that people can participate in. So you can go out, what is it, next Tuesday, and if you have the proper equipment, you can actually see something that's really rare and really cool. Uh, you can see uh, a member of our solar system do something uh, very unusual, and this was big, big news a couple hundred years ago. Uh, they only just were able to predict it a few hundred years ago, but since then, uh, people have been you know, traveling out to, to see these things, and we're lucky to be able to see it in, in North America. And if you're not in North America, come visit. Okay. Um, let's see. Okay, so this is uh, an edge on galaxy that I did not... Um, see, I usually do... Um, well, I, I, I usually do three or four a week, and Jerry does the other ones. So I know a lot more about the ones that I do than the ones Jerry. <laughs> well, we'll keep moving. Let's move back then. This, so, this just so go back to the one floor. I know what it is, but uh, I, I'm not familiar with the, the – um, so I know what that is, too. Wow. But, uh, yeah, so these are, are really cool images that, that Jerry saw. And Jerry usually does the ends of the week. I usually do the beginnings of the week, and Wednesday is usually up for grabs. So the one before that, too. Ah, oh, this is a Jerry one that uh, – uh, so actually, sometimes we disagree. I wouldn't have run this one, but, uh, <laughs> but we're friendly about it. So the previous week, there was an image that didn't have, what is that? Um, is that Ganymede or Europa? Europa. That's Europa. Europa. I wouldn't, there was a previous image that, uh, that was floating around the web that, uh, 
that I saw that had, um, I didn't discover that was put up by the USGS or something that had how much water is there on the surface of planet Earth? And the oceans are comparatively shallow. So it's very interesting to see that there's really not all that much water on the surface of planet Earth. And it's also interesting to know that we don't know how much water is really under Earth. We suspect there's not all that much, but we don't really know. So there's all kinds of things about even the Earth that we don't know. But here was a real interesting graphic display of here's how much water that, that we know about on Earth. And we got lots of people in the discussion thing saying that even a lot of that is salt water. So if you were to do another little thing that is fresh water, it would be a little microscopic, you know, hard to see little dot besides that. But in my view, you can actually desalinate seawater. It's just expensive. So water is water, it's just expensive. It's how expensive is it to make it drinkable? Um, so this one is a demonstration that the Earth does not have the water um, monopoly of the solar system, that actually um, there's more water out in the outer solar system than there is in the inner solar system. And here we have one of the moons of, um, this is Jupiter, I think, uh, that, um, that has more water that we know about uh, than the Earth. All right, so Jason, why don't we, let's do one more image, and Jason, why don't you go back until Bob stops you for the one, for the ultimate image. This looks like a video. Oh, that um, looks like the dragon launch. Yep, that's the dragon yeah, launch. Yeah, we did the dragon launch. Um, what's the one before that? That's the okay. uh, annual we'll just, Okay, we'll stick with, the, with things moving in front of the sun. We'll just go with this one. This will be the last one then, uh, right. if you'd like. So this is, uh, people were posting all kinds of images, and... Uh, uh, some people think that, that if you just take a picture of the, of the moon a little bit in front of the sun, that that will make it on the A-pod. But because of the tremendous competition now, you really have to have foreground objects. You have to have different image planes. You have to have sometimes different colors. So this has, you know, several different image planes. There's the foreground plane, which is Texas. And then there's another plane where there's this windmill and in Texas, and then there's this, this brush in the foreground. There's another plane of images, which is the clouds, which is uh, further out. And then there's another plane, which is the moon. And then there's another plane, which is, um, which is the sun. And they all interact to create a sunset, which is kind of red. And it's just a very unusual sunset. So this is a, more or less of a classical one as opposed to the two that I showed later. But uh, so we have people contributing to our galleries, and we're surfing the web looking for cool images, which is kind of fun to have, you know, uh, something to do to be in charge of a partly in charge of a website that that does things like that. So um, so, so we just have fun picking the cool stuff. So so Bob, a couple of questions. And if so, if a person wants believes they've taken a picture that they think is is great for for APOD or they found their own image, uh, what is the what is the process they should go through? A um, couple of ways to let us know about it. Just look on our webpage until you find our email addresses and then just email it to us or email us a link to it. Another way is to go to the asterisk discussion forum and there is a submission thread there. And in the submission thread, you can upload your image. Um, those are the two major ways. Another way is just have your image become really, really famous so it's all over the internet and then we'll just find it and say, oh, we'd like to have that one. I just I just gave you one uh, this morning I think, um, uh, okay. but uh, I guess the next question then is what about image rights because I know that a lot of NASA photographs are are license free and people can use them for any purpose whatsoever and I think one of the confusions that that a lot of people get into is that because these images are hosted 
on the NASA.gov domain, they're free to use, but they're not free to use, are they? No. Uh, well, some of them are. If it says the word copyright, then some of them you can are. assume that they're copyrighted. Now, NASA has had, had, you can't use NASA's logo for anything you want. NASA has run copyright images uh, before, so we're just, we're not, not breaking new ground, but we're probably somewhat um, public with this. So I think people on Wikipedia have gotten confused and thought that just because it appears on APOD means it's in the public domain. It does not mean it's in the public domain. It may well be, but if there's a copyright on there, then you should contact the copyright owner to get permission to use it on your website. That's a good question. Yeah, okay. Um, all right, great. Well, thanks, thanks, Jason, for uh, for being the, uh, the AV the guy. Yeah, the AV guy, and we didn't lose you, which was great. I I, I was ready to sacrifice you. you to the internet, but it didn't happen. So, so um, <laughs> so just one last reminder: uh, if pe for everyone involved, um, for for Amy, if people want to find out more about where. And Jason, uh, you I lost audio. Uh oh. Uh, you can find my blogging at lightsinthedark.com, uh, also on universetoday.com, and you can follow my Twitter feed at jpmajor. All right, and uh, and Nicole, I don't know if you can you can hear me. People are saying they've lost their audio a bit. Can you can hear me, Nicole? Nope, Nicole can't. She's the noisy astronomer. You can go to noisyastronomer.com. And for Bob Nemiroff, you can find uh, Astronomy Picture of the Day at, as you said, apod.nasa.gov. And I think Bob's about to give something. us a picture. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. All right. All right. Well, thanks. Thanks to everybody for watching. Thanks for everybody who joined us. And we will see you all next week. And just one last reminder. We have, a, we have our uh, virtual star party on Sunday nights, and, uh, and we're going to be showcasing the, uh, the transit of Venus next week live on Google+. So, so stay tuned for more information coming out for that. All right, well, thanks, everybody, and we'll see you all next week. See if they wave. There they go. <laughs> <laughs>